Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Acts, chapter 15. A turning point in, uh, in, in what's going on here with the gospel going out. Uh, remember back in chapter 10, Peter gets this vision. He's there in, in Joppa, which is modern day Tel Aviv. And uh, God says, don't you call unclean what I've declared clean. And he wasn't just talking about food. He was talking about Gentiles. He was talking about people that had previously been outside the covenants of God but now had been added in. And what an amazing, remarkable thing that God would throw the doors open to anyone who would come through the precious blood of Jesus. And so there Peter goes up to Caesarea where Cornelius was. He had also gotten a vision. And and uh, the things that go on there is that God is opening a door to the Gentiles. And then we've looked here as we've gone into uh, the last few studies in Acts, uh, the, 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 the Galatians, Paul's first, Paul and Barnabas, only missionary journey together, but his first missionary journey where he had traveled across, uh, they were up in Antioch in Syria, which is north of Israel. Uh, and and he, they traveled across to uh, the island of Cyprus and worked their way across the island and then traveled north to the mainland in Asia Minor. Uh, modern-day Turkey, and, and worked their way up to a place called Antioch and Pisidia. From there, they got <laughs> things started well, uh, drew big crowds, but they actually got booted out of town. Uh, and so from there, they traveled east, and they went to Lystra, Iconium, and Derby, three other towns, smaller towns, uh, before they decided to head back. Now they could have, as I mentioned last week, as we were wrapping up, they could have taken a shortcut and just gone down to Tarsus, which was probably 80 or 100 miles away to Paul's hometown, where I'm sure he was well connected. And yet, because of their love for the people and their love for the Lord and their commitment to see to it that the work not only took root, but that it would grow they doubled back and they went all the way back and across the backtrack across, didn't go to Cyprus, but they all the way, went all the way down to the coast, the southern coast there, and then sailed back to Antioch. Gone for probably a year or so. And another couple of years, it says that they stayed for a long time in Antioch, uh, stayed for another couple of years there. <laughs> and then, uh, we come to Acts chapter 15. Uh, interesting, uh, looking at in my own life, in my own personal spiritual history, I grew up in a church that is known, and, and, and I use the, the, the term loosely, it was a false religion, but it's known for legalism. It's known for its legalistic approach to the things of God. In other words, the cross wasn't enough. And so they keep things on. They start adding things to and folks, if there is a place in God's word that addresses this head on, it's Acts chapter 15, because that's exactly what starts taking place in the early church. The grace of God was going out. It was so radical. And I mean, yeah, if you've been church for any length of time at all, you understand that grace is part of it. These people didn't. All they knew was law. All they knew was rule keeping. All they knew was that all the way back in Genesis chapter 10, God spoke to Abraham and he said, look, this will be the sign of the covenant that you, uh, that your males are circumcised and that, you know, for, that going forward, that th that's the sign of the agreement. That's what covenant means. And yet, and yet that was a sign that would be fulfilled in Christ. And so, uh, in, in the first century, it was one thing to accept the occasional God-fearer. We've talked about that. Uh, Gentiles who were sympathetic to Jewish ways, not Jews per se, but they would show up at synagogue. They would go to church, <laughs> and yet they weren't Jews. They weren't proselytes. So, and so the Jews, they were open-minded, open-handed with that, and they, they welcomed them and all. However with the gospel, 
with the coming of Christ, it was way, totally, quite another thing now that large numbers of Gentiles are coming into the church. And, it, and they don't have any regard for the law of Moses. The law of who? And it, they don't have, it, not only that, they have no intention of keeping it. The Jews were scandalized. The, it was it was round circles into square holes. They were having trouble reconciling this. I mean, I spent my entire life from my youth observing the law of Moses, and now this? Totally a, a, a stumbling block for the Jews. And, and the Apostle Paul knew it. The Apostle Peter knew it. But now there are some things that are going on. We see in verse 1 that caused them to have to confront it. Uh, in verse 1, a certain, and certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, uh, saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's a bold statement. They're tying this to salvation. <laughs> so, first of all, it says that they came down from Judea. You've got to understand that even though they went north to Antioch, uh, that Jerusalem and Judea, it's up in the mountains. Uh, it'd be like saying, let's go down to Mount Hood. <laughs> you don't say that. We go up to Mount Hood. So that's where the, that term comes from. They came down from Judea because they came down from the highlands to the lowlands. Antioch was in the lowlands. And even though it was north, uh, that's what they did. Now, I want to make clear, too, that nowhere in God's word does it say that these men are representatives of the church from Jerusalem. They're not. (laughs) These guys are coming. Now, they may have been rabbis in Judaism because they begin to teach the people, but there's a little bit of wordplay that goes on in the original that causes me to even wonder about that. Because when it says that they began to teach, it means that they began to give instruction. They began to let people know this is how it needs to go. Uh, we had someone come into the church here. This is a couple of buildings ago. <laughs> That's how I count time. Um, a couple of buildings that began to try to compel our, our guys to... Uh, live by the Jewish ecclesiastical calendar and saying, we need to start observing the feasts. Uh, I took him to breakfast. <laughs> and we had a little talk. But the point is, because that kind of stuff can be poisonous to a congregation. It gets a foothold, and then pretty soon, we're, you have the feast keepers and the non-feast keepers, and then after all, I mean, if you're really spiritual, it just opens the door to all kinds of spiritual nonsense, and it totally invalidates the grace of God in a church. Churches have split, churches have died over less than that. So is this a big deal? Yeah, it's a very big deal, because they tie it to salvation, now, there's a lot of stuff that I will just let it go. I, you know, I've told you before, I, I told my church in California one time, I'll baptize you with a squirt gun if you want. I don't care as long as you get baptized. Yeah, it was hyperbole. It was overstating. But my point is, is that's not a doctrine essential to salvation. And there are even groups that will argue with you about that. But it adds to the work of the cross. Anything that changes the person and the work. Who Jesus is, was and is... And what he accomplished, the person and the work. If you stay focused on that, when there are things that come up that change one or the other of those two things, then it's worth arguing about. And I'm not telling you to get on your high horse and browbeat somebody, but it is worth contending for because it changes the gospel. If, and if these guys had let this go on, it would have changed the gospel. It would have changed the face of what Jesus accomplished. Well, he accomplished part of your salvation, but now you've got to get circumcised. Now you've got to keep the law. Now you've got to do this and that. And it, it, it's oil and what? It will not work. And it cheapens the work of the cross. I want to point out, too, these guys were committed to Judaism and to Christianity. Uh, they were... they or to Jesus, they were sincere. These are not the, and we'll talk, there were two kinds of legalists, two kinds of Judaizers. That's what they're, they're called here in that day. One attacked from outside the church with persecution. We've seen that as Paul traveled around in that first journey and 
he and Barnabas were getting kicked out and the, he got stoned and, and, and taken, hauled out of the city to uh, drug out as dead. And they had no small amount of trouble that came up. And that was the unbelieving Jews. It says that in chapter 14. Here, these are believing Jews. These are guys that have said, yeah, well, okay, you know, I understand the grace of God and all that. And yet, there's more. <laughs> and so that is a, it's a clear distinction that we see in the text. And, and, it, and it needs, we need to bear that in mind. It doesn't change the fact that it needed to be addressed. It actually added to that because these are guys that are coming from within the church. They're not people that are throwing rocks at the church from the outside. And very often what the enemy, the, our common enemy will do is if he, can't, if he can't prevail against the church from the outside, he joins it. <laughs> Unfortunately, it happens. So uh, it says that they taught them, and not necessarily in a classroom setting, uh, because the, the word taught here, it's in a continual tense that they were constantly talking about this and saying that Christian, Christianity was not distinct, but it was an extension of Judaism. And the result was, plain and simple, what we call heresy. And heresy, as you know, if you are a Bible guy or gal, is false doctrine. And it had to be addressed. So verse 2 says, Therefore... Because these guys came in and started spreading this stuff, therefore, Paul and when Paul and Barnabas uh, had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So the word they there is, it's not, they didn't have a quorum. They didn't get together and vote. It's most likely the leaders of the Antioch church. So, okay, guys, you know, we recognize that this is an important issue. We also recognize that there are two sides that are very firmly squaring off on this. And so let's take it to the apostles. Now, it's not the, the birth of denominationalism. There, <laughs> I've seen denominations use, misuse this passage like, see, you've got to go to headquarters. Uh, no, you don't. We've got to go to God's word. <laughs> and as we do that, uh, just about anything we face, we can settle within our own ranks. So these, and I want to be fair too, the men that came from Judea, they didn't have a prior point of reference they weren't there when Paul and Barnabas traveled about Asia Minor through the whole region of Galatia. They weren't around when they saw the Holy Spirit being poured out. They weren't there when they saw that huge crowds of people were coming to them or coming to Christ through them. They weren't there as, as, as the gospel was now being not just given but 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 landing and, and reviving hearts on and hundreds and hundreds of people coming that were Gentiles. So these guys didn't have that point of reference at all. So to be fair, they're thinking, well, the only logical thing here is that Judaism goes on, and now we have this Christ thing to deal with and the cross, and yeah, yeah, we can buy into that. But it was wrong. I was talking with somebody. We were at a dinner the other night. Uh, and uh, they were uh, talking about Mormonism. And, and uh, I said, yeah, I, I used to tell people, because I grew up in the Mormon church, that, that I would love to still be a Mormon, because they were talking about how much good they do and all that stuff. I said, only one problem. It's not true. <laughs> and, and again, I'm not here to beat that drum, but I am here to say that there are groups out there that that will add to the work of the cross. Salvation was a completely different thing within that group. And had I stayed in it, I would still be working real hard and going nowhere. So uh, enough said on that. The point is, is very often, because we're under grace, we, we, just, we have to have wide margins. We have to have a lot of grace for other people's opinions, for other people's positions, but not when it comes to the person and the work of Christ. That's where we need to be able to stand up, 
to, as Peter said, to be ready to give a reason for the faith that lies within us, for the hope that lies within us, because these are watershed issues. It's not, it, it's not a peripheral issue. And, and these guys recognize it. The elders at the church in Antioch uh, in Syria there, they recognized it and they said, this needs to go to the leaders in Jerusalem, the guys that walked with Jesus, who were still alive, still on the scene. The guys that were taught by the master himself. And so they do. They, re- they uh, refer Paul and Barnabas and these other guys to go up to Jerusalem and to uh, give these things to the, the apostles. So verse 3, so being sent, excuse me, on their, uh, on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and, that, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. So at, now the little map that I've got here, Antioch is north. It's actually off of the top of the map. But they would go through two provinces, two regions. And this is, again, this is Roman Empire stuff. The region of Phoenicia was just to the south of where Antioch in Syria was. And so it was a coastal area, and there were a lot of coastal cities, Tyre and Sidon. Jesus prophesied against them, and we looked at that where King Agrippa had the people from Tyre and Sidon come. They wanted food and all of that. We looked at that a couple chapters ago. Well, those are from the region of Phoenicia. So they're traveling south now to go to Jerusalem. They go through Phoenicia, and then they go through Samaria, which was a very interesting place, sort of half-breed Jew and Gentile, because back all the way back, I'm not going to give you an Assyrian history lesson, but back when the Assyrians came in and attacked northern Israel, they transplanted a lot of people in that region. So uh, because they wanted to water down the population. People are less likely to organize and start a war if you do that. Anyway, uh, so the Samaritans, and they were looked at with disdain by the Jews. Jesus with the woman at the well, <laughs> that really stumbled the guys. They came back with lunch and essentially said, what are you doing? And I, whole interaction there, again, don't want to take the time to go into it. The point is, is they came traveling to go to Jerusalem, to Judea. That's where Jerusalem was. And uh, they're going through these lands that had already been, they'd been evidently already evangelized because the believers there, the brethren, it says, uh, that it caused great joy among them. They're, They're talking about this fabulous work that God had done when they had taken off and and taken their journey a couple of years before. It talks about the conversion of the Gentiles there in verse 3. And that's an interesting word. It's not a word that's used a lot in the New Testament, conversion. Uh, but it's a fascinating word. The, the Greek word is epistrophe. And what it means is to change one's manner of life in a particular direction with the implication of turning to God in repentance. So that's what conversion is. If you belong to Christ, you have been converted. <laughs> if you truly belong to him, then there's a point in time where you turned from the ways of this world and turned to Christ. And that's essentially the transaction. So it, essentially the gospel is encapsulated in that statement. Uh, again, uh, a word with fascinating uh, uh, um, translation. The translation is fascinating. I, a lot of time, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but I know how to use a lexicon. <laughs> and when I was looking at the lexicon for con- the word conversion, uh, it was a, a fascinating one. It's a whole change of mind. And we know that repentance, that's what it is. When I change my mind, when I repent of my sin, I'm saying, Lord, I don't want to live like this anymore. I don't want to live for the world and for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to live for you. And I, I, by faith, I embrace you, Jesus, and I, and, I, and I receive you into my heart, into my life. That's the, the crux of the gospel. And that's what genuine conversion looks like. So the, Paul and Barnabas and the other guys, they're, they're traveling on their way to Jerusalem and they're sharing with these different ones, the brothers 
and sisters in Phoenicia and Samaria and, and sharing about the conversion of the Gentiles. Again, to a Jewish mind, scandalous. No, we're, we're the special people. We're the, we're the God's chosen people, not, not the Gentiles. Well, not any longer. <laughs> so, uh, interesting. I, I think about what would the conversations be like as they're traveling, as they're visiting with these different churches throughout Phoenicia, Samaria. Uh, they had seen a lot on their journey. I, I sat... Uh, and and looked at, at, at uh, as I was preparing for this morning, as they had gone out as missionaries, as I mentioned before, they didn't know it was their first missionary journey. They probably at that point thought that was it. You know, let's see what God does with this. The, Paul didn't know that he'd be going out again. And by the end of chapter 15, he does, because now he's not teamed with Barnabas. He's teamed with Silas. And he comes in later in the chapter. We'll get to that. But they traveled on that first journey about 1,400 miles. And in the first century, that's a lot. Now, part of it was by boat, but just the part they did on foot was over 800 miles. So they walked over 800 miles over a year plus in time in spreading the gospel. And they picked up some stories. You've got to know that they, as they're sharing with these Gentiles that they are excited because they watched the Holy Spirit being poured out time and time and time again on different ones. Looking and watching people's lives change. Seeing the radical shift that goes on in someone's heart with conversion. So uh, when we look at that uh, in, in verse 3, it, it's remarkable. Uh, I often will, and I try not to get too far off because, you know, I, I can be wrong just like anyone else. But I'll often take a look at the text and just try to imagine what was going on behind the scenes, what's going on between the lines, and uh, offer a bit of color as to what it might have looked like. Again, not trying to make doctrine out of those things. But as I mentioned last week, you've got to know, these guys talked Paul and Barnabas on that ship on the way back to Antioch, they had some conversations. Do you remember when? And and all of that. So verse 4, when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. So they'd been sent out by the Holy Spirit in the church at Syrian Antioch. They'd gone through this whole journey and as I mentioned, 1,400 miles, 800 on foot and all. Uh, fascinating, remarkable journey. And we're gonna, as we study the rest of the book of Acts, we'll go through the next two journeys, which actually are longer and have more cities that they stop in. They start with revisiting the ones on the second journey with Paul and Silas. They start by revisiting the cities that they evangelized at first, at least the ones up in, in central Galatia. And verse 5 says, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up. Again, here's they, these are the believing Jews, not the unbelieving Jews that caused them so much trouble as we studied through chapter 14. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Interesting. As I mentioned, circumcision was a big deal. And as Gentiles in the 21st century, you know, we look at that and think, well, you know, if it is or it isn't, uh, sometimes it's considered a medical issue and all that. But for these people, it was a sign of the covenant. You didn't belong to God if you were a male and you weren't. <laughs> and it was something that uh, God had said to Abraham and his descendants, and it wasn't, a, it wasn't a minor thing in Judaism. It was a big deal. It was related to salvation itself for them. Essentially what they did is they believed that the only way to God was through the cross and circumcision and law-keeping. That's what they're saying here. So, it, it, and again, if you're a well-educated Christian, if you're, if you're understanding the word of God, you understand that they are piling things on that cannot be piled on. 
So verse 6, now the apostles and the elders came together to consider this matter. <laughs> I picture them getting together and, and perhaps stroking their beards and going, so what do you think? Oh, I don't know, James, this is uh, not looking like what Jesus told us. Uh, and probably the leadership in Jerusalem met privately at first, <laughs> and then they met with the others. They probably wanted to talk among themselves and, and to pray and to, to consider these things. It says that they considered the matter. They really thought about it. They wanted to have an accurate understanding. And they wanted to be able to convey that because this, folks, I mean, the New Testament was being written. <laughs> it didn't exist yet. So this is going to carry a lot of weight going forward as to what the church of Jesus Christ looked like. And we're going to see, too, that further in the chapter, we're not going to get to it today, that they issue some recommendations for how Gentiles ought to live. Because these guys, they essentially lived heathenistic, paganistic, godless lives up until this. And they're saying, okay, well, let's just kind of give them some parameters so that they're not a stumbling block to the Jewish believers. And, and if you take that in context, it's not the Christian law. Uh, again, I've heard people misteach that. What they're doing is they're saying in this particular case where we have a largely Jewish culture and Gentiles are being added in, given equal status, not lower status, but equal status with no, no strings attached, Let's recommend that the Gentiles abstain from blood and things strangled and all this other stuff. And we'll get to that. Uh, it's a fascinating chapter. And then we'll talk about how that applies to us because we aren't to put a stumbling block in a brother's or a sister's way. We aren't to be living our lives, the, the liberty we have in Christ, in ways that stumble other people, that cause other people to be scandalized. That's what the word means. So... Before I preach another Sunday's message, I'm going to get back to this. Verse 7, And when there had been much dispute or debate, and that's what it means, that they debated this back and forth, Peter rose up and said to them, now this is back in front of the, the larger group, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. It doesn't say that the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and Judaism. It's the word of the gospel. And it's about believing. It's not about doing. It's about being. Verse 8, so God, who knows the heart, I love that, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying, which means cleansing, their hearts by faith. Now, the teaching that you needed to do more, the teaching that you needed to be circumcised or that you needed to follow the law and all of that, that would begin to permeate the churches in Galatia where Paul and Barnabas had returned from. As I've mentioned before, that's why the book of Galatians is in the New Testament. Uh, We've got to be real clear. This, was, this became a major problem in the early church. You had centuries and centuries and centuries of Jewish tradition that now were being said, you know what, that's null and void. It's no longer part of the program when it comes to the things of God. It's equal. You can bring this dirty, rotten Gentile that's been out there sacrificing to who knows what God and living some lascivious life, and the grace of God is just as effective on his or her life as it is on yours. And we'll talk about how that applies to us in a minute. So again, the persecution was coming from the outside through the unbelieving Jews in Galatia. It was coming uh, through strife and division from the inside through the believing Jews. Either one, though, both of these groups, they'd become as known as Judaizers and legalists. And not a good thing. And Paul would write to warn the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 3, he says this, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians. Again, when you see Galatians, that's a group of churches. It wasn't the church at Galatia. It's all the churches we've just looked at on that first journey. 
This is foolish, Galatians. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? And before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Having begun in the spirit, are you now are you now fulfilling this? Are you now completing the transaction through the unregenerate, sinful man? That's what the flesh is. So Peter recounts the events which had taken place, like I said, nine or ten years before in, in Acts chapter ten. He's talking about how the 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 Holy Spirit had been poured out. He's talking about when Cornelius, when the, the, the door had been opened to the Gentiles. He's talking. He goes all the way, you can go all the way back to the ascension there at the beginning of Acts where right before Jesus was lifted up, where he says, look, I want you to go. I want you to go to Jerusalem. And then I want to expand that circle out a little bit. I want you to go to Judea as well, where these guys were from. And then I want you to go further than that. I want you to go, as you've heard me say, to the bad neighborhood, go to Samaria. And then I want you to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Was that to spread the message of Judaism? Absolutely not. It was to spread the message of the cross. And the fact that when Jesus hung on that cross, he did it for you. He did it for me. He died in our place. And if you add anything to that, folks, then or now, it's an affront. It's an absolute affront to God. And saying, God, your work, that, that, that you sent your only son, your, own, your beloved son, to come and to take on humanity as we're, we're looking this time of year, looking at the birth of Christ, that he was born into the creation that you made, that he could grow up and, and take the form of a bondservant, even though equality with you was not something to be grasped, we're told, and that he would go to that cross, that he would become obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And now to say we're going to add to that? Oh, no, 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 no. It's an affront to God. And Paul's saying, that's why he's saying, foolish Galatians. It's clear that he's a mouthpiece for God in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. Here's the progression. God chose Peter to be a messenger of the good news. That's what gospel means, good news. And then further, the only requirement for salvation, as we see here, was to believe. It's the only requirement, and it still is. Do you trust in the work of Christ? Now, the Holy Spirit was given, and therefore he validated their salvation. So why do you say that? And why why does he talk about that here? Because, folks, you've got to think about it. If you are an, a vessel that is unclean because of sin, in our unconverted, unregenerate state, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the Holy Spirit cannot take up residence in your heart because you're not cleansed. You have not yet been cleansed. God will not dwell in the same place as sinful flesh. It's just, he, he would not be God. I could spend time on that, but I'm not going (laughs) to. My point is, is that when you have been saved, when you have truly been saved, I studied a bunch of religions for a long time, for 10 years. And when I was interviewing for Bible college and the guy said, so after, and I told him about this whole, every group I got messed up with. And he looked at me, kind of had his arms folded and looked at me. He says, so are you home? And and I said, oh yeah, I'm home. Because when the Holy Spirit, when I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit came in to my heart, into my life, and there was a radical shift inside, that was that shift that I'm talking about with my conversion. I never experienced that in any of the other isms I got involved in. And I got involved in a few isms. The Holy Spirit wasn't in it. Because I was still not a cleansed vessel. I had never come to the cross. Finally, the progression, uh, the transaction, the completion of the transaction is that their hearts have been cleansed by faith, by believing. 
Their hearts had never been cleansed by law. Law cannot cleanse a heart. It can illustrate what's wrong with a heart, and it does. But there's no power to cleanse. That cleansing only comes through the blood. Period. Verse 10, now therefore... uh, Peter talking here, he says, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? What are you doing here, guys? And loose paraphrase, what are, what are you up to? We can't bear it. We've never been able to bear up under the, the yoke of the law. And that's what he's talking about. And why are you trying to do that now? The law can't save. He says, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. So Peter speaks to his fellow Messianic Jews about the law of Moses being a heavy yoke. You just can't get there from here. It makes sense to the natural man. Well, if I do, I do, I do, I do, I do. But that's not how it works because it's, as I mentioned, to try to add anything to the precious work of Christ uh, will never produce salvation. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives a whole bunch of illustrations about the law of Moses. He says, yeah, well, that's the letter of the law. And let me give you the spirit of the law. And then he gives the spirit of the law, which (laughs) by which men fail. Doesn't matter how much rule keeping you've done. The basis of God's judgment is going to be on thoughts, words, and deeds. And if You have even looked at a woman, he says, with lust in your heart. You're guilty. So he goes through that whole thing and then he says, therefore you must be perfect as my father in heaven is perfect. Does he mean that that's the standard? Yes and no. Yes, the standard is perfection. No, we can't attain it. That will never happen through the law. There's two ways to God. One is you're either absolutely perfect and keep every law in every conceivable way 100% of the time through your entire life because he says, if you're going to do circumcision, you're breaking the whole thing. Or you, you have to keep the whole thing. Or you can simply come by faith to Christ because the law can't save. In Galatians chapter 5, again, I love that Galatians is so relevant to this study because these guys have just come back from there. And, and there was no small amount of stirring up that people were trying to do to undermine the work that they had accomplished at the hand, through the hand of the Holy Spirit in that region. In Galatians chapter 5, he says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Totally in agreement with what Peter says here. Why are you putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples? He says, look, I, Paul, tell you that if you have yourselves circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who has himself circumcised that he is obligated to keep the whole law. If you're going to make it about rule keeping, you've got to keep all of them. The law of Moses contains 613 ordinances. (laughs) And you better get busy with your memory verses because that's a lot. He goes on, he says, you've been severed from Christ. Is there any more serious statement in all of God's? You've been severed from Christ if you're seeking to be justified by law. You've fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. But for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. But faith working through love. Okay, you guys remember, it was that TV program where they'd have behind door number one, door number two, door number three. You know, I want that one. I get a vacation to Maui or whatever. He's essentially saying, okay, there's door number one, law. You want to do that? Fine. You've got to keep all of them. Oh, by the way, if you choose that, there's no way that you can have grace in your life. You choose that, you are under a yoke of bondage for your entire life, and anybody you know that you try to put that on is going to be under the same thing. That's why Jesus told the Pharisees in his day, you tie up heavy loads for men. He says, you go about on land and see for one proselyte, that's one convert to Judaism, and when you have him, you make him twice the son of hell as yourselves. You know, Jesus was, I mean, this is what he taught, and these guys are carrying it out. Strong words. It is Jesus 
plus nothing. Folks, we got to have that in our heads and, and it's got to make that trip to our hearts. It's got to be that way as we deal with other people in this life because we're going to deal with all kinds of people that have goofy ideas. And I'm not trying to sound disdainful. I'm just saying that, look, we've got to have grace. But remember, John talks about Jesus. He says he is full of grace. He says the law came by Moses, but it's grace and truth that were realized through Jesus Christ. When Jesus hung on the cross, and he uttered those words in Aramaic, telestai, it was finished. And if Jesus from the cross says, it is finished, what is he talking about? He's talking about the work of redemption for lost humanity. There's nothing that needed to be added. There's nothing that you can do to pile on to that. And that's what these men from Judea came to Antioch and they're trying to do. And it was, it was as though the, the, by this point, the apostles, if I was there, I'd be stomping my feet going, no, 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 you can't do that. And because you, it, this would change the whole face of Christianity. So I want to wrap up here by looking at legalism. Because folks, it's not just an, a, a first century problem. It's not just a first century issue. It infects us if we let it. And there's subtle forms that creep in, subtle forms that creep into my heart, into my life, that I have to say, Lord, I'm so sorry. Correct my thinking. Give me the right attitude towards these things. First, I want to look at three reasons why it's difficult to identify legalism. And the first is legalism is not labeled. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, hey, I'm going to look in the mirror and I think I'll be a legalist Judaizer today. Yeah, that'd look good on me. Nobody does that. It's not labeled. Churches don't generally identify as legalistic churches either. You're not going to come by and see a new sign out there that says Calvary Legalistic Chapel. I hope. Never. It's subtle. That's my point. The second is legalistic tendencies come in degrees. All right. I mean, as uh, identifying as evangelicals, I mean that we believe in the cross, we believe in the grace of God, we live that, we walk that out. It would be a, a self-contradictory thing to say, well, I believe in law. Yeah, so it, we're more sophisticated than that. So we have more sophisticated arguments or more sophisticated ways of straying into it. It means that, uh, that we believe in the core doctrines, the core tenets of the faith, but we can still drift. Legalism is typically more subtle and mixed with notions of grace in the evangelical church. The third thing is legalism is not well-defined. Now, it is well-defined here. I mean, very clearly defined as we look at it here. But there are some, some cultural differences where legalism, where a legalistic mindset can creep into our thinking. Uh, theological definition of legalism it means the, the tendency to import effort and works into our understanding of justification. What is justification? Just as if I'd never sinned. When I am justified before God, am I justified by faith? Absolutely. If you were here with us in our Roman study You should have gotten that and you can go back and read the book of Romans because that's one of the main things that Romans teaches. You are justified, given right standing before God by faith alone. And that's what's being discussed here. These guys are saying, no, no, no. It's not just faith alone. You got to do this other stuff. No, we have to have a right understanding of justification. Now, on the street, though, legalist usually refers... <laughs> I'm going to read this. This is something I came across. Legalist usually refers to a person who places an annoying emphasis on rules and attempts to impose those rules on others. Here are a few lower-level issues. And some of this might poke you. And if it does, <laughs> go to the Lord. <laughs> Don't send me an email. Uh, <laughs> clothing styles. How about this? Hairstyles. Every color under the rainbow and body jewelry. There's one. Could that guy be a Christian? He's got earrings that stretch out his earlobes to about three inches. 
Yeah, he could. Uh, here's one that, that we've talked about here. Tattoos. See that guy was all tatted up. When I did jail ministry, I, I got to know the difference between a professional tattoo and a jailhouse tat. And I saw guys that were tatted up, and you could usually, you, you just learn things when you're doing jail ministry. It's like, he's a hard timer. You look at him, he's a hard timer. He's been here for a long time because of the, you, you, there's just a look, the, the tatted up. And immediately you can start going down that road of, you know, I wonder how radical they are, you know. And we do that. Our thought processes go there. Some of the old denominational stuff, playing cards, music, dancing. Uh, if you grew up in certain denominations, that was, man, that was forbidden. I see some smiles out there. <laughs> yeah, we've had talks about that. There's one, and believe me, I grew up in an alcoholic household, and I have strong opinions about all that. But alcohol use, that can be a real stumbling block. And Again, in Romans 14, Paul says, you know what? If my drinking wine is going to be a stumbling block for you, I will never, ever touch another drop. I'm free, but I'm not free to stumble you. And we'll talk about that when we get further on in chapter 15 here. Movies, watching movies. Here's one. Using salty language. I love that one guy said, he said, yeah, a lot of times with somebody's conversion, the first thing that happens is that their vocabulary gets a lot smaller. That's not always the case. I know people that are saved that have pretty foul mouths at times. And I'm not making an excuse. I'm not justifying that. I'm just saying that if God has not gotten to that place, you've got to look at sanctification and justification. All right, justification is the means by which we are brought into right standing with God. Sanctification is where God is working in our hearts. He's conforming us to the image of Christ. And I, you've heard me, if you've heard me teach much, you've heard me caution, don't think you know what that agenda is for the person sitting next to you. Because God has a different agenda for each one of us. And it's a dangerous thing to think, I know what God needs to clean up in that person's life before the Holy Spirit does. He doesn't clean us all up at once. He cleans us up by degrees as well. It's very important that we understand that. Bottom line, I've got, there's more, but we're out of time. We'll pick some of this up next week. Uh, we'll talk about uh, three signs that you might be a covert legalist. <laughs> uh, that doesn't mean that you wear a trench coat. Oh, I'm a legalist. But it does mean that we drift into legalism in our hearts, in our minds. Every Christian, and I mean every Christian, is in danger of slipping into legalistic ways uh, of thinking in one way or another. We've got to avoid it. Remembering, again, the difference between justification, right standing before God, and sanctification. When we do, we can enjoy the scandalous, freeing grace of Christ, which is, is what assures us of eternal life. That's justification. It's understanding. It's by his grace alone. I was reading the five solas of the Reformation. We'll talk about that another time. But one of them is solo gratia. And what it means is by grace alone, period. You can't do anything to add to the grace of God. At the same time, we fight against sin as adopted children of God. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, we wrestle. That's being sanctified. Folks, it's a wonderful thing to belong to Christ. And, and if we're teaching anything this morning, it's balance. Not balance with sin, but balancing your approach to understanding that there are places that you can't go doctrinally without getting off, without violating either the person or the work of Christ. But on the other side of that, I, I like to say God has very wide margins. Uh, you know, it's, that's why we don't have a dress code here. I, well, I wear my good jeans. But the point is, is that there are personal distinctions and there's lots and lots of room for that. And for us to get to a point where we look down our nose at another because of the way they dress or because of the way that they talk or because of this or because of that, we've got to be careful. We've got to guard our hearts. We've got to have room for the grace of God, 
for the, the work of sanctification in the heart and the life of another. It's part of the beautiful aspect of God accepting me just the way I am. And then me, my part is I invite him to continue the work. I woke up grumpy this morning. I was at home this morning and I was just praying, Lord, just take this grumpiness from me. My wife will tell you. Not that I was grumpy, but that I prayed. (laughs) (laughs) The point is, is that we're all in process. Have room for that. Uh, I do want to uh, just close with a, a word of prayer as we are embracing the season. Um, I'm excited. With the way that our culture is going and the things that have been taking place, I find myself wondering more and more, Lord, is this the last time that we're going to do this? And I don't know. I am not going to sit here and try to sound like I understand prophetically the timetable that God is on. But I do know how to look at the signs as God's word portrays. And I'm convinced that time is short. And with that, I want my life to count for this little church, for our community, for the kingdom of God. So let's pray together as we prepare to just have some fellowship and then uh, we'll wrap up. So again, Father, you're so good. You're so gracious to us. You're so long-suffering, Lord, and I freely confess the the wrong attitudes that I drift into, Lord, sometimes legalistic, sometimes just <laughs> just wrong. And yet I know that you beckon by your Holy Spirit to come to you when we're weary, we're heavily laden, when the things of this world are bogging us down. And so, Father, I pray for each one here, each one watching online, that you would minister to us by your Holy Spirit the truth of the things that we're looking at this morning. And, and, and Father, that you would fill us afresh. I pray for a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit with myself, with my brothers and sisters here and, and again online, and that you would accomplish through us the things that you desire to do. And our families, as we consider the holidays, as we look at what's coming up through those unbelieving ones, Lord, that there would be a sobriety and a seriousness and reaching out to them. Lord, that I invite you to use us. Fill us with your love. Fill us with grace. And Lord, regardless of where we're at, we simply pray that you'd fill us. We give ourselves afresh to you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.